I'm Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to this week's episode of Square Mile of Murder. Uh, and we've got a very special case for you today uh, in honor of our podcast title and our 10th episode. We made it to 10. How the fuck? I know. And people are still listening and nobody sent us hate mail yet. I, I know. Doing quite well. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm like really <laughs> impressed with us. I mean, not to, you know, toot our own horns or anything, but like, you know, and during a pretty well during a, a pandemic, no less. Yeah. So yeah, you know. we're we're doing quite well. I'm really excited about this one, partly because I didn't write it. <laughs> yes. So what normally happens is I write the scripts and Taylor does the editing. So it's kind of I cover pre-production, she covers post-production. Post, yeah. <laughs> think it works quite well we play to our strengths we do <laughs> uh yeah my strength is not um timeliness of writing and this script was finished about 23 minutes ago so <laughs> so i haven't read it yet <laughs> no so it could be interesting um i could have just made up a bunch of bullshit but i didn't but i could have um mm. I don't know. I just really wanted to write this one because I, I really like this case and I like the, all the like square mile murders a lot. And yeah, so I figured I'd try it. If it's a horrible disaster, we'll never do it again. But <laughs> worth a shot, right? So today we're going to look at the first of Glasgow's square mile murders. And we'll cover the next three every 10 episodes. Yeah. Uh, today's case is the night. No, <laughs> today's case is the 1857 death of Pierre Emile Langelier. Long- Langelier. I don't know how to say it. Um, so we're just gonna make it up as we go. <laughs> the 1857 death of Pierre Emile Langelier and Scotland's trial of the century. Uh, but first, maybe we should talk a little about the famous, or infamous, depending upon your viewpoint, square mile of murder that we chose to name our podcast after. You know, I think that's probably a good idea. Um, mm. So in Glasgow, there is an area of the city called the square mile of murder. Um, and this nickname was first used by writer Jack House in his 1961 book called... Um, square mile of murder fittingly um how original <laughs> right um he coined the term because four of scotland's most infamous murders were committed within one square mile area of the city and that's what his book was about uh so this area is sort of west west of the heart of the city center yeah. but still kind of part of the city center and we'll include a map of the area on social media and the website uh, so you can see where we're talking about. Yeah. But basically, the area starts uh, at Blytheswood Square, which is just east of Charing Cross. And it's where all the Instagram wannabes go to the spa. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't um, know that. <laughs> that is... Oh, yeah. The Blytheswood is a spa that everyone's obsessed with on Instagram. And it's a spa. Oh. This is she. It's a spa. Who knew? That's all it is. Uh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we go from Blytheswood. Uh, 
We then go west across the M8 motorway, which obviously wasn't there in the 19th century. So yeah, we go west towards Finiston, up the woodlands area of the city and Great Western Road, which is a sort of major, major road that goes from the city centre out to the West End. Yeah. I don't uh, think we described that very well, but... No. Basically, <laughs> it's like a little chunk of the city that's slightly west and a little bit more west of the city centre. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So these murders took place sort of in in the heart of what we would consider the city today. Um, hmm. But at the time they occurred, which was between the years uh, 1857 and 1908, some of these areas were more residential than they are now, um, especially some of the areas that were further west. Now those areas are sort of more citified, city cityfied than they were then. You're just making up words now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. It's got it's gonna be that kind of day. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, so let's dig into the first of these cases. Um at two thirty AM on March twenty-third, eighteen fifty-seven, Pierre Emile Longlier stumbled back to his lodging house on 11 Franklin Place in Glasgow. He pounded on the door until his landlady, uh, Mrs. Ann Jenkins, opened up. She found him doubled over in pain on the doorstep and quickly helped him to his room. On the way there, Longlier... I can't say it right. Um, He... (laughs) (laughs) I am still going with Langelier. Langelier. I think it sounds better. Okay, I'll try that. On the way there, Langelier said he was going to vomit, quote, more of that bile. Ew. Um, Nice. And this wasn't (laughs) the first time he'd been ill. This was the fourth time he'd felt this way in the past few weeks. Uh, Mrs. Jenkins put him to bed and covered him up with some blankets. Oh, that was nice of her. Very sweet. Uh, By 7am, his condition was much worse and Mrs. Jenkins went to find a doctor. Uh, She returned with Dr. James Stephen and he applied a mustard poultice. Yum. And told Emil to rest and promise to return between 10 and 11am. Out in the hallway, the doctor asked Mrs. Jenkins if Emil was a drinker because his symptoms seemed similar to someone who was very drunk. Uh, Mrs. Jenkins assured the doctor that Emil didn't drink. After he left, after the doctor left, Emil's condition only worsened. I just love that. It's like this guy seems drunk. Are you sure he's not drunk? <laughs> so at nine a.m., Mrs. Jenkins asked if there was anyone she could get for a meal and he responded um that he wanted to see miss uh mary perry of renfrew street (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of good names in this story (laughs) miss mary perry miss mary perry i think it was miss mary arthur perry but uh you know I don't know if she knows Mary Berry, but they could be a cool duo. 
um uh yeah so mrs jenkins sent someone to get miss perry um and around this time emile said if i could get five minutes sleep i think i would get better so she let him rest and when she next checked he seemed to be sleeping the doctor then returned and she told the man that emile had just fallen asleep and it would be a shame to wake him but the doctor went in anyway and had to tell mrs jenkins that pierre emile L'Angelier was dead. Oh, shit. Flop twist. Yep. <laughs> yep. All he wanted was five minutes kip and never woke up again. Right? That's a total bummer. Uh, Miss Mary Perry <laughs> arrived soon after, but was told she was too late. Mrs. Jenkins asked Miss Perry if she was Emile's fiance, but she replied that she was only a friend. Mrs. Jenkins noted that the poor girl Emile intended to marry would be very distraught to hear the news. Soon after, L'Angelier's regular doctor, a friend and fellow lodger, and his supervisor at Huggins Seed Warehouse, William Stevenson, all arrived. Yeah. I I also love um, Huggins Seed Warehouse. Like, it's great. It doesn't sound particularly Glaswegian, though, does it? No, it doesn't. That's true. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah. So they all show up, um, and Mrs. Jenkins told them that Emil had been out of town for the past several days, but had returned sudden suddenly during the night. Um, Mr. Stevenson took charge of Emile's belongings and found a letter in the pocket of the dead man's coat. The letter read, Why, my dear beloved, did you not come to me? Oh, beloved, are you ill? Come to me, sweet one. I waited and waited for you, but you came not. I shall wait again tomorrow night. Same hour and arrangement. Do come, sweet love, my own dear love of a sweetheart. Come, beloved, and clasp me to your heart. Come, and we shall be happy. A kiss, fond love, adieu, with tender embraces. Ever believe me to be your own dear, fond Mimi. Beautiful. Why doesn't anyone write love letters like that anymore? Right? I mean, just so many details, so many words to say so little things. (laughs) Where are you? Are you ill? Come and meet me where you're supposed to. Yeah. Upon reading the letter, uh, Mr. Stevenson said, Mr. Stevenson said, this explains all. Hmm. It's very intriguing. The next day, a post-mortem exam was performed on Langelier's body and the doctors came to the conclusion that he had died of poisoning. Uh, medical experts found 85 grains of arsenic in his stomach. This was enough to kill 40 men. That's a lot of arsenic. That's a lot of arsenic. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go back a bit. The poor man has just died, but let's learn a little bit about him. Um, Pierre-Emile Langelier. Oh, fuck me. I can't say this. (laughs) Um, Good old Emile 
was born in 1822 on the Isle of Jersey. Um, he was the eldest of five children born to a French couple, Pierre Langelier, and his wife, Victoire. Um, growing up, he was fluent in both French and English, and at age 14, he began an apprenticeship in um, his family's nursery business. When his father died in 1840, Emile, with the help of his mother and siblings, ran the family business as best they could. Yeah, and just in case anyone doesn't know, a nursery in this context is plants, yeah. not children. <laughs> they, 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 weren't, uh, they weren't apprenticing, uh, you know, baby farming or anything. It's trees. That's a completely different crime, that. Totally different. In 1842... Emile took the opportunity to continue his apprenticeship in Scotland and left home for the first time at the age of 19. He settled in Edinburgh ugh, and worked at, at the Dixons and Co Nursery. Uh, while living in the city, he entered his first serious relationship aww, <laughs> uh, with a woman who has no name. Interesting. Yeah. Or at least her name hasn't made it into any of the records. Instead, she's known as the Lady of Fife, which is like quite a name. <laughs> I mean, it's a long time since I've been to Fife. I can't really remember what it's like. Um, the gremlin informed me that uh, Fife is often not looked upon very fondly. And uh... it's it's kind of the hillbilly redneck area of scotland yeah she uh, uh she works with some people from fife and apparently their position on it is we're from fife and thank god we made it out <laughs> yeah so if that tells you anything <laughs> history is very fuzzy on the details but the two may have been engaged and then over time grew apart uh, and this may have been one of the main reasons he left Edinburgh in 1846. So after that, he ended up in Paris, where he lived for five years. Um, while in Paris, Emile worked as a clerk at a mercantile exchange and enjoyed the city's famous nightlife while pursuing several romances. What is a mercantile exchange? A mercantile exchange? I think it's just like... It's a, oh, it's, um, it's like a stock exchange. Oh. It's like, uh, yeah, trading commodities, metals, farm products, etc. He also, for a period of time, but uh, we don't quite know how long, uh, served in the army. Uh, yeah, so I guess he just left the army unclear about the circumstances there but um in 1851 he left paris and returned to edinburgh where he learned his ex the lady of fife was engaged to someone else which is so sad i mean he did piss off for a few years right so, <laughs> so okay lady of fife ain't gonna wait forever mate no um so this led him to pursue many relationships, but each one seemed to end in disappointment and rejection, which um, led him to bouts of depression and at one point uh, had Emile contemplating suicide. Along with being unlucky for love, Edinburgh was no good for work. 
He left and spent some time working as a nursery labourer in Dundee. Uh, before he eventually settled in Glasgow in the summer of 1852. He lived at Kingston Place on the south side and worked at the Huggins & Co. Seed Warehouse at 10 Bothwell Street, which is... That's in the city centre, isn't it? Yeah. Is that off Socky Hall Street? Uh, yes, I believe so. Yeah. Glasgow City Centre is kind of built on a grid. It's mm-hmm. very similar to an American city which is why it quite often stands in for American cities in uh, big film productions, because it's cheaper. Yes, much, much cheaper. <laughs> um, all roads lead to either Argyle Street, Socky Hall Street, or Buchanan Street. Yeah. Um, That's and, pretty much just the way it goes. <laughs> yeah, and most of the locations in this story center around Socky Hall Street. It's mm. a good way to sort of ground yourself when thinking about this if you're looking at a map uh, he attended church at St. Jude's Episcopal which I can never say Episcopal <laughs> Episcopal at St. Jude's Church on Jane Street there you go <laughs> eventually he became friends with Mary Perry Our and dear would friend. often spend time with her at her home on Renfrew, Renfrew Street um she convinced him to move to a more socially acceptable area. So he moved to new lodgings in 1854 and he lived on Great Western Road near the Botanic Gardens. That is a nice area. It's a very nice area. Well, I just love that she was like, listen, you can't live on the south side. You got to be more more fancy than that, bro. <laughs> um, yeah, but like the south side is having a revival now. Everyone wants to live there. I want to live there. I know. So if only he had waited, you know, hundreds of years. <laughs> it would have been fine. Yeah, it would have been acceptable. Yeah. Um, so Emil often walked up and down Saki Hall Street, which was one of the most desirable areas of town at the time with the wealthy and the up and coming. Um, now it's still a major thoroughfare for city life and it has a lot of clubs and restaurants and entertainment videos, uh, venues. entertainment videos entertainment venues um but it's a little more grimy i think than it probably was during emile's day i'm still upset that our favorite chicken wing place (gasps) got shut down i know i was thinking about that as i was writing this it's like man that was was so worth walking to the other end of sucky hall street for it was Um, very disappointing yeah but Back in 1854, there were less chicken wing places and more, like, fancy houses and and shops. Yeah. You know, go figure. Um, (laughs) So, Emile would dress in the latest fashions on these walks. He also sported a twirled mustache, as all fancy men should. Um, And... uh, he would walk up and down Saki Hall Street, hoping to catch the eye of a beautiful young woman. Um, and on one of these strolls in 1855, he happened to do just that. He saw a, quote, gravely beautiful young woman. <clears throat> Bit of foreshadowing there. Damn. <laughs> and Gravely beautiful. I want to be described as gravely beautiful. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so he sees this gravely beautiful young woman, 
Um, and during later outings, they exchanged glances in the crowd and even began to unconsciously seek each other out. But it's 1855, and a fellow can't just go right up to a lady and say, Hey, how are you? My name's Pierre, but my friends call me Emile. What's your name? Of course not. That would be so rude. Yeah, seriously. Instead, Emile had to con- concoct a scheme to properly meet this mystery woman. He managed to befriend some of her family's friends, Charles and Robert Bird, and had Robert introduce him when the two saw this woman on Socky Hall Street in late February of 1855. Bird did just that, and Emile met his mystery lady. Her name was Madeline Smith. Uh-huh. The gravely beautiful Madeline Smith. <laughs> oh, yeah. She was the gravely beautiful Madeline Smith. <laughs> um, so Madeline Hamilton Smith was born in Glasgow in 1836, which would make her just 19 at the time of her meeting with Emile. Um, she was the oldest of five children born to architect James Smith and his wife, Elizabeth. Uh, the Smith family lived in a big fancy house on India Street, which was near James's office on St. Vincent Street, and all sort of in and around the city center. Um, uh, because Madeline's mother, Elizabeth, was described as being, quote, of delicate health, Madeline <laughs> often took over, the, like, caring for the house and raising her younger siblings. Delicate health. Yeah, I could How ill do you have to be to be of delicate health? I don't know. It's such an interesting turn of phrase that, like, I also couldn't quite figure out what exactly, what ailments she had. I think she just, the stuff I found was basically, like, um, she often took to her bed and spent the day there. So yeah, it kind of seems like there was probably some mental health issues but we, we wouldn't yeah. want to refer to those outright because it's the Victorian era and we don't refer to anything outright. So at the age of 14, Madeline was sent from Glasgow to London to attend finishing school at Gorton's Academy for Young Ladies. And at Gorton's Academy... I already hate it. <laughs> but just wait. At Gorton's Academy, the curriculum included lots of prayer, music lessons needlework and of course lessons in good manners uh i like the needlework part of that because i do like crafts yeah that's it no no none of the prayer no no same mrs alice garton who ran the school kept close watch on her pupils and didn't allow them much privacy uh, which of course meant that they all got very good at keeping secrets passing notes and the like And Madeline was no exception to this. On the outside, she impressed her teachers who described her as diligent, attentive and bright, though they did note that she could be prone to stubborn sulks. I mean, that's literally every person in the entire world. Well, I know, I was going to say the same. I stubbornly (laughs) sulk all the time. (laughs) Yeah, uh, if you don't stubbornly sulk, you're a liar. You're not doing... Teenager, right. In 1853, Madeline graduated from Gartens and went home to Glasgow where she was supposed to wait, like all finished ladies did, 
for someone suitable to ask her to marry him. Uh, now, this is the point in the story where I mentioned that one of my source, major sources for writing this was Rick Geary's um, uh, graphic novel about the case. And in this part, when he mentions that she's supposed to just wait and wait to be proposed to, he literally drew Madeline sitting in a window just waiting to be proposed to. <laughs> and I just thought that, like, that is so perfect. <laughs> um, but if you'll remember those stubborn sulks described by the teachers, uh, Madeline was kind of just stubborn in general and didn't like the idea of just waiting around for some dude to propose. She wanted romance and intrigue and drama, uh, just like she often read about in popular fiction magazines of the time. Uh, but the I don't blame her. I mean, no. He doesn't want some intrigue and some drama. Exactly. Like, it, it's fair. It's just sitting, staring out a window, waiting for men can get pretty boring. So, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, or so I've heard. Maybe not the right person to ask, but whatever. <laughs> oh, no, it gets boring. <laughs> you got to have Netflix on in the background or something. Uh, that's fair enough. She probably had her um, four siblings just uh, reenacting plays in the the parlor while she <laughs> while she waited, <laughs> um, you know. But these these desires for drama and intrigue were her secret desires, and she still had to appease her parents. Um, How scandalous! I know. And so to get them off her back, she attended all the necessary balls and parties that one needed to attend to find a husband. Uh, and she was known around town to be a bit of a flirt, but not fast like some other young ladies in those social circles. Ah, oh, get over it, you prudes. <laughs> By age 18, she was permitted to go on unchaperoned daytime outings. Sounds fun, doesn't it? <laughs> wow. Often with her younger sister, Bessie. They often walked along Saki Hall Street and perused the shops for the latest fashions. It was during one of these outings with Bessie that Madeline and Emile finally met after sharing so many glances. <laughs> Once they met, they spent as much time together as possible and as much time as was proper by meeting at prearranged times in shops or along Saki Hall Street. But uh, these meetings were stopped when the Smith family left Glasgow in April to spend time at their country house about 20 miles up the River Clyde in a town called Rowe, uh, which is near Helensborough. Uh, I know it's the Victorian times and 20 miles is quite a distance. Yeah. But if I had a country home, I wouldn't want it to be 20 miles outside the city near Helensborough. No, not really. Um... You'd want it to be, like, up in the highlands or something. Yeah, right? Like, I'd want to be a little further flung. But they got to take the ferry there, which is pretty cool. So it's a trade-off. Their large home was called Rowellen, I think, is how you pronounce it. So we're going to... Yeah, I think so. So we're going to go with that. Um... And of course, it was named because fancy people in the UK name their houses, and it's fascinating. And yeah, it's a thing. At one time, all houses had names. Oh, well. My parents' house has a name. 
all the houses on our streets do and they're like two up two down semi-detached houses hmm. interesting well mm-hmm. i'm going to name this house let's see it will be roadside manor crow road edition <laughs> and yeah to give you an idea of the size of this country home it's now called Invergare castle so oh. not a small little country cottage castle worthy now <laughs> Nice. Um, so while at Rowellen, uh, Madeline wrote the first of many letters to Emile. Uh, 198 in total were found among his possessions after his death. Um, Ooh. So she was quite the wordsmith. She was uh, very productive in the letter writing department. Um, and in this first letter... Uh, she wrote about how much she enjoyed his company and their walks together. Mm. I have actually just Googled Invergare Castle. Mm-hmm. Damn! It's fucking gorgeous. <laughs> Unfortunately, it seems that Madeline didn't keep any of Emile's letters to her. So what we know about their correspondence is very one-sided. Yeah. But her next letter made one thing very clear. Her father was not happy about their budding friendship. Mr. Smith learned from, quote-unquote, some friend, (laughs) who many believe could have actually been Madeline's sister, Bessie, that Madeline had been meeting with Emile, and he was outraged that his daughter was walking around town with a gentleman unknown to him, who was also a foreigner and a mere clerk. I mean, that is pretty damn outrageous. Is he really a foreigner, though? Because the Channel Islands are technically... British part of the British Isles I think technically he's not a foreigner but I also think Mr. Smith didn't really care (laughs) now because of this snag Madeline wrote that they must stop their correspondence but they were super hot for each other and that only lasted a couple days before they were writing letters again it's such self-restraint right it's like literally like a week goes by and then the letters start up again. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And here's where things started getting hot and heavy. Madeline used all the secrecy skills she learned at finishing school and receives Emile's letters under the name Miss Richard or possibly Miss Bruce. uh, Accounts differ um, at the post office. And she even taught Emile some of the sneaky tricks she knew, including telling him to come to Rowellen to meet her, but to get off the ferry at Helensboro, which is the stop before. Um, and once he walked the rest of the way to the house, they would meet in secret in the property's walled gardens. So when the Smiths were in Glasgow and her parents were out, Madeline snuck Emile into the laundry room mm. with the help of sympathetic housemaid Christina Haggett. Christina often shuttled letters back and forth between the two while Emile's friend, Miss Perry, let him meet her meet in her parlour. So scandalous. Yeah. Emile told Miss Perry that he's Sorry. He was determined to win over Mr. Smith and to marry Madeline. But in July of eighteen fifty five, one of Madeline's letters put poor odds on that ever happening. She said that her father had told her once again to stop speaking to Emile. And she wrote, Father hates you with all his heart. He despises you. 
which harsh <laughs> that is just i mean let the guy down gently right she wasn't great at that <laughs> it if they were younger it would be very much like teenage angst but they're a bit too old for well, that so excuse to fly when they met she was 19 he's 10 years older so <laughs> like yeah she, grow up a bit yeah she is sort of still teen ish and he's not um yes so learning that mr smith despised him you know as as will happen it broke poor emile's little heart um and he considered shipping out to work in peru but he didn't need to worry because madeline quickly started writing to him again uh though this time she signed all her letters as mimi why peru apparently it's very extreme it, it like it's a weird choice apparently he thought he could earn a lot more money and gain cultural status by going to peru he just okay then he just decided nah never mind i'm good by the end of 1855 emil wanted to go public with their relationship while madeline was desperate to keep it all a secret they had different objectives but still the romance continued and the letters indicate that by this point they considered themselves engaged and had set a wedding date in September of the following year. Though in 1856 their romance continued until one summer evening in the gardens of Ruelin when they finally consummated their relationship. Mm-hmm. <gasps> mm-hmm. Um, so after they took it on down to Pound Town, um, Madeline... <laughs> Like, seriously yeah <laughs> hey you let me write it this is what was gonna happen <laughs> yeah and your punishment is you're not allowed to write anything for 10 more episodes <laughs> <laughs> i think our listeners will find this delightful <laughs> okay we'll see <laughs> tell us on social media <laughs> um right so pound town um Madeline wrote to Emile saying she didn't have any regrets about having sex out of wedlock. She wrote, quote, If we did wrong last night, it was in the excitement of our love. Yes, beloved, I did truly, truly love you with my soul. Tell me, pet, were you angry at me for allowing you to do what you did? Was it very bad of me? And like, yeah, what an over-the-top letter-writing style. She appears to have become a Geordie very briefly. <laughs> so pet is like, you know, like how here in like Glasgow they say hen. Yeah. In Newcastle, sometimes in Sunderland, not so much, but definitely in Newcastle they say pet. Well, she says, she calls him my pet a lot. So. Ah. Um, but yeah, her her letters are something else. And we've really only included here like, little bits and pieces but they go on and on and on and like every sentence ends with a my beloved or you know yours truly my love my sweet love love me forever yours madeline or mimi or whatever so it's a lot (laughs) yeah um so there was that program i think it was crime files it was on bbc scotland a while ago yeah yeah and actually covered 
this case. And so along with this, in one of the other letters, she describes giving him a blowjob, which obviously <laughs> was like the most scandalous, salacious thing ever because that was something only prostitutes did. Yeah. Um... Um, and obviously she was not a sex worker. She was a socialite from the upper classes. So it was absolutely horrific yes. that she would not only do these things, but describe them in letters as well. Yeah, write them all down. Yeah, there's one where she's like, how nice it was to see you last night and to be fondled by you. It's like, oh. <laughs> Emile, it turned out, was angry with Madeleine. In a surviving draft of his reply, he wrote, Since I saw you, I have been wretchedly sad. Would to God we had not met that night. I am sad I am sad at what we did. I regret it very much. Ooh. Yeah. That's uh Ouch. I mean it's usually the other way around. It's usually the woman regretting it. Yeah, but, you know. no, she she was totally fine with it all. <laughs> <laughs> He goes on. My conscience reproached me of a sin that marriage can only efface. Uh, so now that they sinned, super hard. Mm-hmm. Emile was desperate to actually get hitched. And he implored Madeline to stop going all around town, being the belle of the balls that her parents insisted she would attend. Um, and it seems like she did try, uh, at least a little bit, to limit her socializing. Uh, but this all hit a snag when she met one William Billy Minnick. Uh, he was a very well-off and socially connected merchant in his 30s, um, and he was really into Madeline. And Mr. Smith approved of Minnick and pushed the pairing. Uh, now, to put into perspective the sort of different economic circles that Minnick and Emile belonged to, uh, Emile earned 10 shillings a week at his nursery clerk job which would net him about 24 pounds per year minnick on the other hand earned three thousand pounds per year and to put that into even more perspective in today's money emile was earning about 2604 pounds per year and old billy boy was earning the equivalent of 325,514 pounds per year so i mean as i see it there's a very simple solution you marry the rich bloke and you have an affair with the poor bloke i mean that would be a very good way to go about this unfortunately not the route she took (laughs) (laughs) madeline started seeing minnick a lot and in her letters to emile she tried to address any fears he might have that she had eyes for someone else she wrote, don't give an ear to any reports you may hear. Try saying that when you're drunk. Yeah, really. <laughs> there are several I hear going about that I'm to be married. Regard them not. True and constant I will prove. Don't fear me. I shall be thine. <laughs> but the previously planned September wedding got postponed. Yeah. Um... So in the fall of 1856, Emile moved to uh, Mrs. Jenkins' small rooming house at 11 Franklin Place, which was basically just around the corner from uh, the Smith's house on India Street. 
And also the Smiths then moved to the fashionable and fancy Blythswood Square, apparently of spa fame. Didn't have a spa at the time. No, just lots of uh, nice houses. (laughs) Um, Mm. They moved into a large house and from the outside, it looked like they owned the whole building. But in fact, the Smith family only lived um, in the ground floor and in the basement. And, you know, who would have guessed it? But one Mr. Billy Minnick owned one of the upstairs flats. It's just a crazy coincidence. Who knew? How how did that happen, I wonder? It's just just wild, really. Um, (laughs) So Madeline shared a basement bedroom with her younger sister, Janet. uh, And their room had windows facing the street that were level with the sidewalk. And it was easy for Madeline and Emile to pass letters back and forth between the bars on the windows. Oh, how romantic. Right? She even told him, listen, you should go buy brown envelopes so that they blend in with the ground better when you drop them into my window. (laughs) Oh, my God. This woman was something else. (laughs) Sometimes Emil would even wait in the cold until Janet fell asleep so he could talk to Madeline through the window. He, probably quite smartly, bribed the local policeman on duty at Blytheswood Square with cigars, and the police turned a blind eye to his loitering. (laughs) Sometimes, when it was very cold, Madeline would pass Emile a cup of hot cocoa through the window, and it was easy for her to mix up hot drinks like cocoa because her bedroom was right next to the house's kitchen. Oh, so very convenient. It is very convenient. Um, But as the winter continued, she started to find it difficult to keep up her double life. Billy Minnick spent lots of time at the Smith house during the Christmas season, and Madeline's parents assumed that he would propose, like, at any minute. Um, And Madeline continued to write Emile, and she kept signing her letters with things like, Adieu, my dear Emile. Believe me, thine ever-true, devoted, affectionate wife, Mimi Langelier. On January 23rd of 1857, she wrote to Emile saying, If we could only get married, all would be well. But alas, alas, I see no chance of happiness for me. Five days later, Minute proposed and Madeline accepted. Womp womp. <laughs> mm, what are you going to do? Yeah. It's true. Women women just like... Women don't want boys... What is it? Girls don't want boys, girls like cars and money. Yeah, yes. The, the classic Victorian adage. Madeline's letters to Emile began to get colder and more distant. And when he returned one of her letters, she took the opportunity to try and break off their engagement. Smart. Wrote, well, I mean, she's engaged to another man now, so... <laughs> Might be she time. She should probably end it with one of them. Yeah, right. <laughs> she wrote, I felt truly astonished to have my last letter returned to me, but it will be the last you shall have the opportunity of returning to me. When you are not pleased with the letters I send you, then our correspondence shall be, correspondence shall be at an end. And as there is coolness on both sides, our engagement had better be broken. You may be astonished at this sudden change, but for some time back, you must have noticed a coolness in my notes. My love for you has ceased, and that is why I was cool. I did once love you truly, fondly, 
but for some time back, I have lost much of that love. It's like really harsh. Like, oh, there are kind of shorter, easier ways to say that. Yeah, right. And it's None just of like, them oh. spring to mind, but you know, there must be. Just uh, there has to be something better than oh, you gave me back one of my letters. So by the way. I haven't loved you for a really long time. <laughs> I also love the, because there's coolness on both sides, our engagement had better be broken. Like, you better. It's like, just balls up, lady, and just tell him to kick it to the curb. Um, but even if she had ballsed up and done just that, Emil wasn't gonna wasn't gonna hear it um he regarded her as his wife and he told madeline that he would show her letters to her father to prove the criminal intimacy that had happened between them um which of course madeline wasn't super happy with uh she begged mm. him not to share the letters and to wait until they could speak in person on february 11th she wrote I put on paper what I should not. Do not make me a public shame. Meanwhile, around this time, she sent the Smith family page, William Murray, uh, along to a chemist's shop to buy a vial of Prussic acid, but the druggist refused to sell it to the young boy. And uh, if you didn't know, like I didn't know and had to look it up, Prussic acid? Yeah, that's cyanide. Yeah, um... Prusik blue is actually the name of the type of cyanide they used in gas chambers in Nazi concentration camps and death camps. So she was just casually trying to send the small child servant to go buy her some cyanide. On that same day, Wednesday, February 11th, Emil started to keep a diary in a small pocket notebook. He wrote down what he did each day with little notes like... Dined at Mr. J. Mitchell's and saw M at 12 p.m. in C.H. room. That would be Christina Haggart's room, the Smith family's sympathetic maid. Here, Emil and Madeline reconciled. Again. <laughs> Emil saw Madeline again on February 13th and on February 14th he received a letter from her. In this letter, she asked him to return her cool letters and she'd give him some nicer ones in exchange. <laughs> they continued to meet and on Thursday, February 19th, Emil wrote, saw Mimi a few moments, was very ill during the night. Hmm, interesting. Um, now, on, Febu on Saturday, February 21st, Madeline went to the Murdoch Brothers Apothecary on Saki Hall Street and bought a sixpence worth of arsenic. She told the clerk she was buying it to get rid of pests in the garden at Rowellen. And she had to sign her name to the poison book, which was required by law for all sales of things like arsenic. Um, and she left the shop with an ounce of arsenic. And arsenic was required by law to be mixed with some sort of colouring agent like soot or indigo. So people wouldn't confuse the white powder with salt or sugar. 
Uh, but it would be easy to disguise a powder in something like, let's just say, hot chocolate. Just as an example. Totally yeah. random. Where, where did we get that from? I don't know. Just <laughs> off the top of my head. Emile and Madeline continued to meet and Emile continued to get knocked down by this mysterious stomach illness. He regularly had chills, a fever and vomiting, sometimes vomiting bile. Gross. Um, while spending time with his friend, Miss Mary Perry, the best named friend ever, um, Emile mentioned that he thought it may be the cups of hot chocolate from Madeline that had been making him sick. And on March 9th, he even told Miss Perry, quote, I can't think why I was so unwell after getting that coffee and chocolate from her. It is a perfect fascination, my attraction to that girl. If she were to poison me, I would forgive her. Perhaps she might not be sorry to be rid of me. Oh, get a life, man. <laughs> He's a really? bit of a sap. You're going to forgive her if she poisons you to get you out of the way so she can marry the rich man and everyone's happy? I know. like, Earth And Earth. also, you can't forgive her if you're dead. So something to well, chew yeah. on. On Friday, March 6th, Madeline and her friend Jane Buchanan went to Curry's Apothecary where she bought another sixpence of arsenic to help her get rid of rats at her house obviously <laughs> definitely attracting those rats this madeline yeah yeah the two friends even joke while madeline is sing is signing the poison book about how funny it is for a respectable young lady to be bu buying such a deadly substance that's hilarious that afternoon the smith family leaves glasgow for a holiday in the spa town of bridge of allen uh, which is just outside of sterling um, so Madeline told Emile not to follow her to Bridge of Allen because she wouldn't have time to see him. She wrote, quote, I hope you won't go to B of Allen. It would make me feel very unhappy. Sterling, you need not go to as it is a nasty, dirty little town. We interrupt our regularly scheduled programming for a podcast gremlin update about the town of Sterling. Only in Sterling could you look out your window and see two bums fighting with crutches medieval style. Also, Madeline didn't want Emil to show up because Billy Minnick would be there too. And in fact, on that trip to Bridge Vallon, they set a date for their wedding, June 18th. Uh, while she's in Bridge Vallon, Emil went to Edinburgh for a week and stayed with some friends who noted he didn't look so hot. Was it those yeah. exact words? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was the direct translation. On March 18th, Madeline returned to Glasgow and bought even more arsenic from Curry's Apothecary. It just Them you can't get rats. enough. All right. Those rats, they're like, they speak French. They're about six feet tall. They got a mustache. They're everywhere. <laughs> that same day, she wrote to Emile and asked him to meet her the next night. But Emile had left to go to Bridge of Allen and had his mail forwarded to his hotel and received the letter too late to return to Glasgow. So Madeline wrote him another letter after he didn't show up, this time pleading to see him again. Now, this is the letter that's ultimately found in Emile's coat after his death. Once the letter reached him in Bridge of Allen on Sunday, March 22nd, Emile immediately returned to Glasgow. 
He returned to his rooming house and spoke to Mrs. Jenkins at 8 p.m. when he asked her to give him the house key because he thought he might be out late. At around 9.30 p.m., Emil tried to visit the lodging house of St. Vincent Street. He was then seen walking along Socky Hall Street towards Blythewood Square. Where he was or what he did for the next several hours are unknown, and he was next seen at 2.30 a.m., at his boarding house in extreme pain. Hmm, suspicious. Mm. And we know what happened next. Emil died of arsenic poisoning on March 23rd, um, and on March 26th, he was buried in the Stevenson family vault, uh, his boss's family vault, at the Ramshorn Churchyard on Ingram Street, where his remains remain to this day. Actually, me and my dad were walking through the Merchant City a few months ago and actually found where that cemetery is because I'd read really? about it and I was trying to figure out where it was and I was like, oh, it's here. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've walked by it like several times just yeah. accidentally. But it's, <laughs> now, it's now owned by um, Strathclyde Uni and oh. it was all locked so we couldn't go in. Oh, that's a bummer. On March 25th, the procurator fiscal, James Hart read several of the letters between Madeline and Emile and was shocked by their contents, yeah. as he should be. Mm. Um, Madeline was interviewed at her home and admitted that they had had a romantic relationship and correspondence, but that she hadn't seen Emile for several weeks. Plus, she was engaged to someone else, so, like, what did it really matter anyway? <laughs> Obviously. Um, I mean, that's a great excuse, isn't it? <laughs> right? It's like, oh, I, I this other guy, I said I'd marry him. So, like, what does it matter that I was talking to this, this French guy? Um, <laughs> but investigators learned that she had made three separate purchases of arsenic in prior weeks. And on March 31st, 1857, Madeline was arrested and charged with one count of murder and two counts of attempted murder. And now we get to Scotland's trial of the century. Madeline only ever made one statement about this whole sordid affair, and that was to police on the day of her arrest. She told them that she had been romantically connected with Emile, but because of his poor health, she hadn't seen him for three weeks. Quite convenient. Yeah. Uh, she said that she had written asking desperately to meet with him so she could tell Emile of her engagement to Willie, William Minnock. But Emile didn't show up on Saturday, and she said she didn't see him on Sunday either. Uh, she admitted to buying arsenic, but told her interviewers that she used it as a cosmetic, di diluted of course, and Obviously. put on her face, neck and arms, a trick she learned while at school at Mrs. Gorton's Academy. She also admitted to giving Emile cocoa from her basement window, but swore she never poisoned it. And regardless of whether you think she's innocent or guilty, it was actually a thing to put arsenic in your makeup. Yeah. So, um, now whether or not it was a thing to swear up and down that you didn't poison someone's drink, we'll leave that up to you to decide. Um, from her arrest in March until her trial began on June 30th, 1857, Madeline was held in Glasgow's North Prison. 
the local newspapers wrote often of the trial, and the case stirred the public into a frenzy. Um, this led authorities to move the trial to Edinburgh's high court uh, because people in Glasgow were already overly familiar with the case, and there was a general opinion among the upper class of society that Madeline was innocent and that Emil had committed suicide. Now, members of the common classes, quote-unquote, believed that a, a wealthy young lady like Madeline wouldn't hesitate to get rid of Emil if he proved inconvenient. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when the trial began, the streets were filled with curious citizens and members of the international press, and the courtroom was filled beyond capacity. Well, that sounds like a fire hazard. Uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> she was tried before a three-judge panel and was represented by a defence team of three, led by John Inglis, hired by her father. Her parents didn't attend the trial. They remained in Glasgow, but her younger brother Jack was in the crowd. Her jury consisted of 15 men, including three farmers, one merchant, one bootmaker, a courier, a teacher, a clerk, a cabinet maker, a cattle feeder, a shoemaker, and four gentlemen. <laughs> Not forgetting the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. Candlestick maker. That's what I thought when I was reading through that. I was like, God, I also love that they clarify... The difference between a bootmaker and a shoemaker. We mustn't, oh, yes. mustn't mix the two. No, of course not. Um, yes. So during the Crown's case, a chemist testified saying that it would be nearly impossible to accidentally administer that much arsenic to someone. Um, Christina Haggart, the maid, told the court about the secret meetings between Madeline and Emil that she helped facilitate. Mrs. Jenkins testified about Emil's strange and violent illnesses, and Miss Mary Perry told the court about Emil's suspicion that Madeline may have been trying to poison him. Uh, now, the Crown also had Billy Minnick testify and say that he had never known Emil even existed and that Madeline had kept it all a secret. Uh, Minnick left court that day and never spoke to or saw Madeline again. <laughs> that's that's quite impressive considering they all lived in the same building i know right yeah it's just like nope I ha i'll have none of it and <laughs> off he went so she got rid of the guy she lo actually liked and now she's lost the rich guy because of it so really she's just not doing very well exactly like who really lost here um <laughs> On the fifth day of the Crown's case, many of Madeline's letters were read into the record, including the scandalous ones about, you know, being fondled and, quote, loving each other in the gardens. Um, and of course, all of the details of these letters were promptly printed by the press. The defense had a built-in advantage when it came to presenting their case. Because Emile's letters and diary were not allowed to be read in court because their authenticity could not be proven, this left Madeline with no direct evidence against her. Uh, she didn't testify, but instead the statement she'd given to police on March 31st was read aloud. Some of Emile's acquaintances testified that he was sensitive and fragile when it came to women and told the court he had considered suicide before. One local shopkeeper testified that he kept his supply of arsenic unguarded during the day 
and that Emil could have come in and stolen some at any time. Well, that's silly. I just love that. It's like, oh, yes, I own a shop in this town where this happened, and I don't guard my arsenic, so obviously this guy came in and just stole some. Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) Totally plausible. (laughs) Madeline's sister, Janet, testified that Madeline smelled... Madeline fell asleep in their room on March 22nd and was still there on the morning of March 23rd. But did Janet sleep during that time? How well, did she know where her sister was if she was asleep? Exactly. And uh, legend has it that Janet was a very heavy sleeper. So even if Madeline had skittered away to poison someone, she might not have noticed. Exactly. Um... On July 7th, the Crown's closing arguments included a plea to the jury to focus on the purchases of arsenic, which clearly pointed to Madeline's guilt. Um, The next day, the defense's closing arguments insisted that Emile was unbalanced and had seduced Madeline into their lurid affair. Uh, The defense also argued there was no evidence that the two had seen each other after any of Madeline's arsenic purchases. And that surely, if she didn't want people to find her letters, she never would have killed him, because that would obviously guarantee that the letters would be found. So, you know. Yeah, that does make sense. It does. It does. It's it's a good argument. Um, and when the defense finished their closing arguments, the courtroom burst into applause. So. That kind of gives you a clear indication of where we're going. A little bit. On July 9th, the jury deliberated for just 22 minutes and returned. On the first count of attempted murder, they found Madeline not guilty. On the second count of attempted murder and the charge of murder, they find her not proven. Mm-hmm. Or not proven. Not proven, yes. Is actually pronounced in Scottish. Yes. Um, And here we get to talk a little bit about the weird third verdict that exists in Scottish courts. Um, Now, in other parts of the world, a not proven or proven verdict is sometimes called the Scottish verdict. And apparently in Scotland, it's sometimes called the bastard verdict, a coin, uh, a term coined by Sir Walter Scott himself. (laughs) Why not? Yeah. Um, So a verdict of not proven in Scots law basically sits somewhere in between guilty and not guilty. The idea is that if a jury returns the verdict of not proven, they believe that the defendant is guilty, but that the Crown didn't provide sufficient evidence to prove that the defendant is guilty. I can't remember what it was. Some documentary I watched last year, I think. And it was a Scottish crime documentary and they talk about the not proven uh, verdict as actually it was originally guilty or not proven not guilty originally wasn't in uh, it wasn't a part of us uh, like the Scottish verdicts yeah so originally not proven was actually the same as not guilty and it's just stuck yeah so make of that what you will <laughs> I think most people understand it as we think you're guilty but it's not been proven yeah especially Um, like yeah because in like the i think it was the early 1700s they reformed the system and brought in not guilty 
in addition to guilty mm. and not proven. And so because it, yeah, it was just kind of hanging out there as this extra thing that like the, the definition of it kind of began to change. Yeah. So, so after being found not proven, Madeline was released and the courtroom and crowds outside erupted into cheers. Uh, she returned to Glasgow, but had trouble escaping her newfound infamy. Uh, she ultimately moved to London with her brother Jack, and she took the name Lena and met George Waddell, whose watercolour class she was taking. Oh, Such a meet-cute. Yeah. Waddell also worked as a draftsman and as the business manager for the designer William Morris. He proposed to her and didn't care about her notorious past, and they got married on July 4th, 1861. They had two children, Mary Kitten Waddell, weird, born in 1863, and Thomas Waddell, born in 1864. Um, Lena and George became part of London's cultural and political avant-garde scene and became friendly with many famous artists and politicians of the time, including writer George Bernard Shaw, um, who apparently liked to joke that he would gladly uh, drink coffee served by by her and uh, wasn't afraid <laughs> of the consequences. I mean, that uh, is when it's just... That is you, that's your time that you actually poison someone. Yeah, just right. To be like, ha ha, joke's on you. When they're, they're really not expecting it. Then, um, then you've got to have you got to have a very very fast escape plan, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, their children grew up to be as free spirited as their mother. Um, Thomas became a well known radical, and Kitten became an advocate for free love and shocked those around her by smoking in public. It's just terribly shocking. Uh, it's interesting how things come around again because now we get really pissed off at people smoking in public. I know. How how Victorian of us. Yeah, so Lena became known as one of the leading hostesses in London and she's even credited with doing away with tablecloths in favor of placemats at dinners, which uh, apparently was considered very scandalous because in Victorian times, all legs, including table legs needed to be covered at all times what about chair legs i don't know you know that's a good loophole there could have very mm. you know scandalous naked chair legs i just find it amusing that men are that fucking backwards that they can't see a table leg a table it has leg to be covered yeah i know like how just how were they how were people wired up back then? Because I have a lot of questions. <laughs> I know, seriously. <laughs> George left Lena in 1889, and she lived alone for many years in the town of Leek in Staffordshire. <laughs> that is Leek as in the vegetable leek, not a leek in the roof. Yeah. <laughs> Unless that is where you keep your vegetables. Onion town. <laughs> Oh, there's some cracking place names in England. Yeah. And Scotland. Just... We'll, have to, we'll have to compile a list. Oh, for sure. 
People came to know her as a bit of an eccentric recluse and often saw her walking around town in strange clothes and a shocking red wig. I just, like, love that detail and also want to know where she got a fucking red wig. I would like to come to be known as an eccentric recluse who walks around town in strange clothes. Fair enough. That's my goal in life. I think we can make that happen for you. By 1916, Lena moved to New York City, where she lived with her son, Tom. In New York, she met and married her th- the second husband? Second husband, fourth... Fourth... Fiance. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> William A. Sheehy. Yes. Um, and she was like... In her 80s by this point, but yeah. she looked much younger than she actually was, apparently. And she, he was in his 60s when they got married. So she was um, robbing the cradle a little bit there. Oh. No. Um, in New York. Well, I she... mean, she's lived a whole life of infamy, so. I know. <laughs> like, stop? really. Why stop in your 80s? <laughs> just, just go for it, lady. Um. <laughs> In New York, she was approached by several different people wanting to sell the story of her notorious life in Glasgow, but she sent each one of them away. Um, uh, William Sheehy died in 1926, and Madeline died on April 12th, 1928, of kidney failure at the age of 92. Uh, But for some reason, nobody seems quite clear on her death certificate lists her as being 64 at the time of her death so (laughs) just another weird quirk in this woman's life (laughs) well if she looked younger maybe she was still passing herself off as being in her 60s maybe um she was buried at mount hope cemetery in hastings on hudson in new york and that is the story of the death of pierre emile langelier and the trial of madeline smith so what do we think? I think she was guilty. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I think she is the kind of stereotypical rich person who got away with it. Yeah. He he was of lower class. He was quote unquote foreign, <laughs> depending how you look at it. Obviously, French parents, but born... Uh, in was it jersey or guernsey the uh, jersey. one of the channel islands yeah um so you know yeah i think she was guilty <laughs> but also she was a hell of a woman yeah not condoning the murder like the whole murdering people who get in her way but you know she did what she wanted and she didn't conform and clearly passed that on to her daughter and as well <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um yeah guilty yeah um i agree <laughs> i but equally not proven so you know <laughs> yes like yeah i think the whole trial bit of it is really interesting because like it was such a sort of like built up and fantastical thing in the press and then you know the jury came back in under a half an hour and they were like, eh, we think she probably did it, but 
who's really to say? You guys didn't prove it, so yeah. go on with your life. Yeah. 22 minutes isn't really enough time to deliberate no. a murder case. <laughs> no. I don't think so. <laughs> um, But yeah, she's super guilty and um i i just i think this this is a really interesting case and i i mm. love reading her crazy fucking letters they are <laughs> just bananas uh and we'll link um uh the jack house's book square mile of murder because he includes a ton of her letters in like their pretty much entirety and ugh, they're, they're really it's worth it to spend sort of an afternoon reading them and just bathing in their <laughs> absurdity <laughs> yeah i'm gonna have to borrow the graphic novel from you when yes. we get out of quarantine because it's really good it's it sounds amazing yeah so yeah uh thank you everyone for listening and stay tuned this week because we've got another square meter of murder minisode coming out for our five dollar a month upwards patrons yeah and if you haven't already signed up for our patreon you can do so at www.patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder uh tiers start from just one dollar a month which i haven't checked the exchange rate for a few days is about 80p yeah it's less not than much. a can of iron brew it's it's you know, very affordable um, yeah all one dollar and up patrons get episodes a day early mm-hmm. like fancy people <laughs> and two dollar a month and up you get very special merch which is finally being printed and we're very excited about Yes. Although half of it is still in transit somewhere between Germany and North Yorkshire. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, I haven't got it yet. <laughs> it's coming though. It's it definitely it's on exists. Its way. Yes. Yeah. Um yes. Very exciting. Uh, I think we're up to four patrons now. Uh they may or may not all be related uh to me in some way shape or form yeah. but uh <laughs> i haven't got round to bullying my family into it yet you gotta They're get on resisting. that i know i'm slowly breaking them down there you go bit by bit right <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so come check out the patreon um come hang out with us on social media let us know what you think of this case do you think that we've chosen a good podcast name based on you know this this one quarter of uh this infamous area of town um and uh you can find as always links to more information about the case um including some of our sources like jack house's book or uh rick geary's uh graphic novel the case of madeline smith um you can find those in our show notes or on our website Uh, we have pages for each individual episode so yeah Yeah, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. And to our patrons, we will see you on Friday. Yes. With a case I'm very excited about and very angry that BuzzFeed Unsolved did it a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) Yeah, they scooped us. I'm not over it. (laughs) Not over it.
but we'll do it better, right? Obviously. Duh. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll see you guys then. Okay. Bye. Bye.